Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. So welcome again to another Invested Investor podcast. Today, we're in the offices of Ofri Ben Porat, who has a company called Pixanai, who's an entrepreneur, and we're going to talk through his journey. So first of all, Ofri, you were born in Israel, I believe. Can you talk a bit about your background and your education? Absolutely. So first of all, thanks for, for having me on. Yes, I was born in Israel, to be fair, lived there very little till first grade, about six, seven years old, and then moved to Belgium with the entire family. My dad was also a bit of a, a business uh, freak. Took the entire family for a year to Belgium to try this new company that he was working on in Israel. Ended up staying in Belgium for about seven years. And then just when we thought we're going back to Israel because the business was going well, he sold the business in Europe and reopened it in New York and we moved to New Jersey. So I actually finished my high school in uh, the USA in a nice little town called Tenafly, New Jersey. Then went to college in America, in Rhode Island, uh, University of Rhode Island, and then a year into college. By the way, I went to, probably shouldn't say it here, but my major then was uh, dance and theater. So oh, right. Okay. Program, I think you uh, should say that. And you have said it. And I have it? said it. No, it's too late. But <laughs> no, but I mean, my life was geared towards theater and dance. And a year into college, I just decided that I will probably at some point want to live in Israel and that the army is a big factor in life post army in Israel. You only had an Israeli passport at this point. Yeah, yeah, but I, and I wasn't required to do the army because I haven't lived in Israel since I was seven. Right. It would have been a volunteer, if any, but it was extremely something I, th- I think that was so deep rooted in my family. My father was a brigadier general in the armored corps. And so after a year of college, 
I decided to go to Israel. Much to the dislike of my father, instead of joining the Armored Corps, I joined the infantry. And I ended up spending five years in the Israeli army. So this took you from about the age of about 21? 20, so I did one year college, so about 20 yeah. I moved to Israel, and I stayed there until about 24, yeah. towards the end of 25. And so then finishing the army, I ended up falling in love with Israel again and stayed and did my final college years at IDC Herzliya, right. actually studying government. I actually went to that university last year when I visited Tel Aviv. And so you've got the army background, which is a really important part of team building and all the other things that come, great stuff that comes out of Tel Aviv and Israel. So what then triggered you to become an entrepreneur? Did you work for another company first? The thing about becoming an entrepreneur, I think, started mainly in the college. So IDC, what it does very well, and, and it's not surprising that going to Israel to visit a person like yourself would end up going to see IDC or Itzliya and not the seven other big universities like the Technion and Tel Aviv University that also have a name for themselves. That's because IDC is very much geared towards entrepreneurial but I think it, it very much drives you to experience first or to, to, to get up and do. My first six months at the university, at the college in Israel, founded the first fraternity outside of the United States, Alpha Epsilon Pi, uh, with funding from the U.S. fraternity. And the college gave so much support to this fraternity, which was unheard of in Israel, to kind of take place, including funding for events and, and stuff like that. So there's a lot of support there. Two months later, we founded the International Festival and we got a lot of support. That's everybody brings food from their own country and we display it over a couple of days. So, I mean, there's a lot of just get up and do mentality at IDC. So you formed Pix and I with your co-founder and that was initially in Tel Aviv, was it? That was in Tel Aviv, yeah. yeah okay. Did you raise funding there or? What we did was the idea came to live in Israel. We've both grown a bit cynical of Israeli funding. I think this push of Israeli VCs or investors to imitate the U.S. Valley made them very cynical. And for me, it just, it didn't feel like this kind of tech should be going into the Israeli funding circle. Actually, what we did was we went to Dublin to okay. Web Summit okay. with a very terribly looking self-made by myself PowerPoint presentation on Loop. You know, all the mistakes of a, of a terrible PowerPoint presentation. We went there with a very interesting idea that Nadav had presented to me and the first iteration of me formulating it. And I wanted to go to Web Summit more because it was in Dublin than it's because it was the Web Summit. I mean, obviously everybody back then heard about Web Summit being phenomenal, but I wanted to go to somewhere where it's a bit less American. I just felt like Dublin was a nice neutral land. We went there with zero expectations. However, that is where we got our first funding. And that funding was from where? Where were the where residents? So we were funders? presenting and this lady walked by and she seemed fairly interested, but not too interested. I told her, she said, I'm not interested. Give it to me in 10 seconds. So I gave her 10 seconds of the craziest thing that we, which is as far removed from what we actually do, but as, as, as crazy as I could make it sound. And she said, okay, you know what? That's, that's actually a bit more interesting. She took a step in, gave me a bit more time, saw the presentation, gave me her card. We got in touch later that evening. She said, listen, we're closing our first fund cohort for this 2015. Why don't you come speak to the board next week? So she's part of Collider, which is a marketing and advertising tech accelerator. Here in London. In London, yeah. a London-based. Flew to London, pitched to the board, pitched to the investors. Uh, they loved it. And we got 50,000 pounds from her. We'll do it 50 for four months for 10 companies. And the five companies that really succeed in creating something in those four months will get another 100. Yeah, okay. And we were one of the companies that got the 155. We won the demo day after four months and then obviously got the, the extra 100. So that was our first investment. 
And what was the idea then and what are you doing now? The idea of the company then was to create a new value exchange between data and value add from the brand you engage with. To kind of create a platform where marketeers could engage at a very personal level, almost like a bartender would engage with a regular, but to allow brands to engage at that level of personalization with their customers without actually knowing who those customers are or with taking the least amount of data from their devices. Isn't this what sort of Facebook's trying to do or not? Facebook's taking a lot from yeah. the devices <laughs> to the cloud for analysis. But yeah, essentially allow a brand like your insurance or your, your bank app or your retailer app to have the same level of personalization as Facebook does. Because Facebook has it yeah, yeah. for Facebook. Because Facebook has access to information. Yeah, on but it does it on Facebook. Yeah, it yeah. personalizes Facebook. Yeah, yeah. The brands are left with whatever they can buy off of DMPs or... or, or, or DMP? What's that? Uh, data management platforms. Okay, so. yeah. I think Ernest & Young published a report this year saying DMP data accuracy on gender for 2018 is 50%. 50%. Yeah, so. on gender. So you're, you're better, coin, yeah, exactly. So it's like, it'll be cheaper to use a 25 pence coin, or they said a 25 cents. Yeah. It'll be cheaper to flip a quarter yeah. than to pay, you know, a million dollars to a DMP to give you data. About yeah, yeah. But again, we wanted to create a holistic place where the brand owns the data, analyzes data, and engages on the data completely on the device. So that was the idea four years ago. Is it still the same idea now? The idea is still the same. The way that we create this engagement and interact with the user is a bit different. So four years ago, we were going to look at people's personal photo galleries on their phones. Today, we do an array of, of, of analysis. If back then we would drag some things to the cloud for deeper analysis, today we do everything on the device. Right. GDPR came along and we fully complied by pushing everything away from the cloud onto the device. And our big IP is being able to use the devices, CPU and GPU, computing yes. powers to run AI deep learning processes that would take a ton of space. On I know, I've just got a new phone this last Friday. It's got two neural network engines inside it, doesn't it? So presumably exactly. you'll program to use those when you can. Exactly. So we use those. The, the question is, can you run these computer vision processes on, on neural networks on a device? And our, our solution allows that. So yeah, I mean, it's very similar to where we started. There's been ups and downs, and I wouldn't call them pivots because the idea is still the same. The vision is still the same. But we've had definitely these different tackles like GDPR coming in, like brands not fully ready to analyze data or not fully ready to give up a DMP because it's legacy. Mm. Some of these brands have apps written on code in a language that none of our coders have ever even heard of. So you need to embed in the app. Yeah, yeah, it has to be embedded. We don't have our own app. We're we're a tech enabler. But you do have one because I've loaded it on my... Oh, we have a demo. We have a demo demo, one that we use for investors and potential POCs if they're afraid to use their own. And we use it for internal stuff, but it's not marketing. So before we get on to the ups and downs, I'm sure you have both of those. A typical customer now is a brand who's got an app and you want to improve the experience, the knowledge that, A, the experience of the user, and B, the knowledge that the brand has. 100%. Yeah. Okay. And reduce the amount of information that user has to give up from their phone. Everything is stored locally. Right, okay. Uh, but yes, absolutely. That's so I've got to ask the privacy question here, because right. you know, I assume if I got further with my demo app, it would have asked for access to my photos, access to my contacts, et cetera. Would that, is that so no contacts, we don't need any of that. Yeah. Because we do everything on the device, all we need is pre-granted access to image media files, which a lot of brands ask for. And we always say in a pop-up, saying at no time will this app, it's never Pixonite, but let's say it's brand X, will see your photos, touch your photos, and move them to a temporary folder. So in fact... But if you say no to that, presumably the, you know, the app still works, okay? Oh yeah, everything it, works. Yeah, it's fine. just so a Pixonite SDK yeah. is not, it's yeah. not activated. Yeah, fine. Um, okay. So we have, we have the piece of tech in there. Privacy-wise, 
it's by far the least intrusive data aggregation mechanism that exists today in the market. And I can say that hands down because we test that constantly. You can't, you know, British Airways just got hacked. We all yeah, from the credit cards. Yeah. Credit cards yeah, yeah, and numbers. Yeah. That's because they store that stuff locally on their servers so yes. they can create promotions. That kind of stuff cannot happen if you're using PIX and ISDK. And you can get to the same level of understanding. But you still need trust. You need trust. A, the brands need to trust you. And B, of course, the users. Exactly. But, and again, for us, it doesn't matter because we're ring-fenced per brand. So if you have two apps on your phone that carry our SDK, we yeah, analyze you twice. Oh, you analyze yeah, yeah. Twice. yeah, we have no way of, of cross-referencing it. So in fact, we don't own any of the data. We're tech enablers. You integrate a tech, and then it's your data. It's your tech. We give you services on top of it. We never see that data. We don't care about that data. It's yours. Okay, but well, one more question about this. As a user, how has my experience improved if my brand, say it's one of the banks, it includes your tech? Right. So I'll take one of the big banks today, Barclays, for example. Yeah. Barclays have introduced something called Life Events to their app, which shows you 10 life events in the app that you might be going through. And there's content in there. Divorce. Right. Getting death. married, having a baby, buying <laughs> the, a new home. The positive ones. The positive ones. Yeah, and the negative <laughs> ones. Yeah. All, all the good ones. So we had an employee here who has Barclays, and she was relatively young, but already married, and definitely not thinking about buying a home. But given her age and her income level, mm. the bank only pushed to her getting married and having a baby. Now, she's definitely not planning a baby in the next 10 years, and she's living with her husband. Right. So, I mean... They missed there because the personalization came from transactional data, from behavioral Which data. is negative for the user, negative feedback Neg- about exactly, the brand. Yeah. Exactly. If she opens the app and the first thing she sees is a picture of two rings and think, thinking of getting married, thinking of having a baby, I mean, if, if, and I'm Jewish, so, and I don't have kids, yeah. right? and I'm 34, which means I get that from my aunts is not enough. I don't need to get it from my bank. Right? You know what <laughs> yes, I mean? It's, uh, there's a limit to how much I can get pushed on that. So if I see a, a bank advertising me, you know, about yeah, yeah. to have a baby. So I'm, that's the improved experience. Right. Okay. And so... With Pix and I, the great thing here is because we're on the device, every new photo you take, every new action you take is already added to your local understanding. And so instead of that, it could be planning your next holiday, which would be a much more positive experience if I opened my bank account, especially if you can tell that I've been to three summer holidays in the same area approximately for the past three years, and you can interact with that directly. And, and so this is where the machine learning comes in, presumably. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Okay. And just create that, that positive engagement. So knowing exactly what your users need, without knowing who they are, right? That's the idea, the underlying idea. So you've raised some funding from Collider. You've had another four or five rounds since then, haven't right, you? Right, so we've had, we've had four rounds altogether. Yes. So yeah. talk just a bit about that, how you found investors, how they found you. You've had a big Series A, is that in the public domain? Can we talk yeah, about yeah. that? We, yeah, we can talk about with the Series Octopus. A. Yeah, yeah, yeah with Octopus. Yeah. Uh, that was the most recent one. Yeah. So I would think the Collider round, which was £150,000, that was, you would say, the base pre-seed round, that's almost our friend. We call it the friends and family because we've become very close to Collider. Yeah. And so that was £150,000 from Collider, which was the great thing about Collider is that it's a network of angels that invest under one hat. So we only deal with one person, but in shareholder meetings, we have 18 ex-CMOs, ex-CEOs, ex-founders who have money, who have all come in. And because they've all invested very little, they're not those high-level investors that are disconnected from reality and what's going on in business. They all left their job maybe yesterday or are still actually working yeah. as CMOs and investing off their PL, their personal yeah. PL sheet. And so they still all have contacts in the industries that they work in as well. And so that was a very good way to start, I think, for us because A, we didn't know anything about London or the UK. Collider, which was also an accelerator type, so it also had events here. So I kept coming back and forth from Israel to London to meet the investors, to meet the events, meet potential clients. Well, we spent it on his own tech because yeah. we had the challenges of the tech. We are a core tech company and we knew that's going there. So I was still on my own back and forth. 
But what it did was it set up very nicely for a next funding round. That 150 goes by, I mean, at an instant. 150 is, is nothing, especially in this market today. If you're trying to make a, a move on any industry, like a marketing, like tech, like financial, whatever it is, people have money and they're pushing forward. Mm. So you raise another round fairly soon. So fairly soon after closing that 100, about four months later, we decided to go on a pre-seed round that we can get a, a strong team of engineers and researchers in place. So we did a 400,000 pound round. From Collider and who so else? So the Collider investors came in preempted, but we started looking around from Collider and you know it's a network effect and, and I think fundraising a full-time job. And because the company was focusing only on tech and not selling any products yet, it wasn't looking like we were gonna sell mm. for two years any products. It gave me the full ability to be a full-time fundraiser. So I just started creating this continuous network effect off the back of Collider and, and so on and so forth. Met somebody who sits on the committee of Harvard Business School Angel Association. Right, right. And he pushed me to go to their committee. They passed four companies a quarter to their network. And then the Harvard Business School Angel Association comes to see it and they can invest off the back of that. You yeah. do a 20 minute proper pitch. I was told by that guy who brought me in, I passed, obviously we made it to the final pitch. I was told by him to come with term sheets ready, printed, because these guys come with checkbooks. And I thought it was a great joke and an attempt to really spike up a Harvard Business School event. And I didn't come with, obviously, term sheets, but I finished my pitch and you're supposed to go outside and wait until everybody finishes and the four companies have tables and they come and ask questions. And I finished my pitch. As I'm going out, this guy follows me outside and says, listen, I got to run but I'm in for uh, 50,000. And uh, where do I sign? And I said, what do you mean? You're in for 50, you don't know the terms? He's like, love it, I'm in for 50. They take the fact that the committee has vetted you enough. Yeah. And so I took a piece of paper down and I wrote 50. I wrote his name down and went to my desk and people came in and said, put me down for 20. And over the next two days, I raised 250,000 pounds from about 10 angels that saw me speak for 20 minutes yeah. and, 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 and figured, you know what? This is worth the investment. So. Harvard Business School Angels came in. We had the Collider, having made some noise around that, got a, a Russian investor quite excited about it. There were a big fund then yeah. uh, called Impulse, and, and, and we, we really liked the way they pushed their businesses forward. And so we took 100 from them and, yeah. and created that 400,000 pound run quite quickly, all from really tough networking. So we're at 550 now, and that allowed us to actually put some things in motion. Raising that money, we agreed that will be the landmark to me moving to London okay. full-time. Because running the business in Israel and being on the line to London- Very customers are not in Israel, are they? Not, so, nobody's. No. <laughs> to understand the scope, we need brands that have apps, right? And, and we get paid by the amount of users they have yeah. as we analyze them. And I'm meeting the Daily Mail in the UK and they're saying, can you cope with our bandwidth? Analyzing on device, we have, you know, between 6 a.m. and 7 a.m., close to 60 million visits to the app, wow. right? So across the world. And at that time, we were averaging 100,000 on our test POC grounds, right? And Nadav, my girlfriend, said, of course we can, right? Uh, and so we started working really fast on it. It doesn't matter if we work with them or not, that's besides the point. Flew to Israel for a meeting with Ynet, which is Israel's biggest news app. It's the Daily Mail of Israel, but on that scale. And we're sitting in the meeting, and I just remember him saying to me, can you work with the biggest app in Israel? And I was like, <laughs> having just had that meeting, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, what do you mean? It's like, we do have close to 1.2 million <laughs> users monthly. <laughs> monthly active users, I said, well, actually, I'm saying that's not where the money is from a client perspective. Yeah. Tech is a different thing. Yeah. Also, I would have a meeting here in London. Great meeting. Go back to the airport to go back to Israel. Get an email at the airport from the guy I met saying, listen, I pitched you to my boss, the CMO. 
He loves it. Can you come in tomorrow at 9 a.m.? And I'm already at the airport flying back to his. I said, actually, I'll be back in London next week. By then, the conversation's yeah, exactly. cold. You have yeah, to read exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's stopping. So you have to be living here. It's stopping. Yeah, sense. Yeah. We needed the money for it. Yeah, yeah. And so, as soon as that 400 hit, I moved to London. And you went to Weira, did you, first? Uh, yeah, so Weira, Weira opened their doors to us. They were part of our 400 round. And went to Weira, there was a soft landing. It's a nice co-working space with very friendly people. Sat there for a while and started the business from there and was able to hit meetings after meetings after yeah, meetings sure. at a much higher pace. So you by yourself here and then a small tech team in Tel Aviv. There's about 10 in Israel and myself here, me and a laptop. So Weira gave us a four-person desk. And then you've had a couple more rounds before you got to the Octopus round, have you? So we had one more round before the Octopus round. It was a... 2.25 million seed round. You um, still got it a seed? Yeah, we had a pre-seed. So the, the, we, we had, had a, two pre-seeds. So we had the family friends, friends which was 150, and the 400s. When I started this, 250K was a great seed round. You know? And then you'd move on to A at the sort of 750 to a million. So. Interesting, because in, in the US today, I just came back from New York and Chicago, I was meeting a few VCs, and I told them that we did a six million pound Series A. And they said, Series A, you mean seed? Eight million, right? <laughs> And I said, well, it's like, yeah, Series A in the, in the valley now is, you know, 10 or something. North of 10, 10, okay. 20. Yeah. So you got 2.25, and this is where Zen Invest came in. This is Zen Invest. Uh, we were what are they? Is that a family office? Or? It's a very big family office run by one of the brothers of the family. Extremely friendly, personal environment. We were introduced to them through a finder's fee kind of person that I was in touch with. Had a few meetings with them. They like the idea. They like the team. That's what they invest based on. And they put in what one to one and a half. Uh, they, they put they put uh, one point four million. Yeah, fine. And then you topped it up with preemption, pre-emption yeah, yeah. and also brought in. I really wanted a strategic investor next to Wira because we thought Wira was Telefonica. Turns out it's Wira is Wira and yeah. Telefonica is Telefonica. So that wasn't as strategic impact as we wanted. We wanted a really strategic impact at that time. We were looking at financial services as a potential move and managed to bring in Santander. Corporate venturing arm. Yeah, 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 okay, yeah. Fine. Santander okay. Ventures. So they came in for a nice check yes. as part of that round. The reason we brought them in was Octopus. Octopus said no to us for that round. We went to Octopus for that yeah, 2.2 yeah. million round. The seed round, as we called it. And they said no for a couple of reasons. Two of the major ones were, we don't see in your cap table a conventional VC with enough at stake to risk this kind of risky tech. And because we don't have a VC there yeah. yet, or, or institutional money of some sort, they feel like the tech of the company is a bit too risque there yet. That was one thing. And the second thing was, you're too much focused on ad tech, especially with Collider being an ad tech. Yeah, company. okay. And so in 2016, when I moved to London, we won KPMG's best ad tech company in London. In 2017, after we did our seed round, we won KPMG's best fintech. So that's a transition we did for yeah, Octopus. Okay. And Octopus always said, come back, this is our comments, why we can't come into this round. Love your stuff, though. Let's keep in touch. So we took all their negatives and just, I made sure to hit. But we had to get, we had to do some changes. And bringing Santander in in the seed round was to make sure they understand that, A, we have a conventional institutional VC in there because it's Santander Innoventures. They work as a VC. And two, it's a bank. Yeah. And obviously the privacy thing, you know, the regulations we had to go through with Santander before they invested. We're talking audit by a third party. So what else have you learned in this journey? There must have been times where you've stayed awake at night, maybe? or I think one of the biggest things I've learned is that investors, VCs, angels, family offices, no matter who you're talking to, they need as much catering as any other person in the company, client that you're selling to. And I think the first thing I learned is that there's no chance at all to do that whilst doing anything else. I got slapped in the back of the head once 
when we did our seed round, where I figured I hired some team in London, we'll start doing sales whilst I do this 2.2 round, which ended up with me almost losing both. And then when I agreed to lose the commercial and focus on the round. So you let people go or? We just, I just stopped putting any effort into it. When we hired our first chief commercial officer, he did a brain dump on me to see where we are in commercials. We drew it on the board. And it's just, we did month by month and where the conversation starts. And then you see like this three months period where there's dead zone, but no new clients, all the old clients I was in conversation with lost, dead silence from emails. Cause we were looking through my inbox yeah. and he's like, what happened in this year? I was like, well, I was, I was raising our seed round and, and, and there's just nothing I could do about it. You needed the money. You needed the money. It was more important than the customers at that point. Yeah. So I think that'd be my first learnings from doing around is it's either you go in it full hearted, full time job, or you don't. And it gets easier as you go because then you hire that CCO so that next time you do that round or, or a head of commercial, there's somebody to keep the company going while you're doing the round. I think the second most important thing I learned is negotiations around equity. I say this sometimes, it can be taken out of context, obviously, and everything in this world because the rule books have not been written yet. There are no guidelines. I've written my book, it might no, help. Exactly. <laughs> it's such a wide array of, from small-time angels, SEIS, not EIS, CSEIS. You can't codify it. You can't codify it, right? Like my engineering team, if I want them to tell me if that picture has a dog in it, they do three keys on the keyboard and it runs a mathematical yeah. equation. I can't say, will this person invest if I show him this? Yeah, of course not. No, it's human beings. You're a human, I'm a human. It's a relationship between us, the trust that you have to build up. Exactly. And for me, those codes are not present. And so I will say this, but it has been contested and can be taken out of context. But I think you run a company on capital, not on shares, right? I can hire employees with capital. I can't do it with shares. Mm. I can build new tech. We can hire offices with capital. I've seen a lot of people get into this rabbit hole of just negotiating their heart out for that extra 1%, extra 2%. I don't have that much equity in the company, right? But I have a really big dream to sell it for north of a billion. And that's fine. If you're, if you're in that path and you're going in for that for that much, We've given up a lot of equity. But you realize throughout time that A, you need that capital. B, if you've taken on the right people, that equity is worth so much more in, in double time value and, and you know, the network effect. And it's not worth losing sleep over. Yeah. And, and I did lose a lot of sleep over it at the beginning. About being diluted too much. Diluted too yeah, much. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's my second biggest learning is the amount of sleep I've lost over that notion of equity. And yeah, I think, I think throughout the time, it's about keeping the relationship proper with the people that you want to bring with you. And I will say this carefully, but it's also about cutting off relationships with those that you know are going to be toxic to your business going forward. You're not talking about shareholders though, are you? Some of them might be shareholders. Yeah, okay. Um, absolutely. Because shareholders that were positive for me when we started can turn out to be toxic going forward. Very difficult to remove those. The best thing to do is to offer a very nice secondary. Oh, you've done this already, have you? We are in the process of finalizing secondary. Yeah, so you can't remove them, but yeah. you can remove the relationship in the sense that you just make it less of a, of a thing. So I have investors that have drained me for meetings and conversations and, and explanations. And, so, and you need to know that there are some shareholders along the way, but it's also about relations with the companies. Yeah, that's a really great thing you've said. I haven't had another interviewee that said that, an entrepreneur, this concept of shareholders actually getting in your way, trying to choose the right ones, not managing to do it. And then you're stuck with them. Well said. So you're there. You're in yeah. that relationship. You're yeah. in that marriage. You can't divorce them. It's very hard to relieve shareholders. Yeah. If it is toxic and you feel it's toxic and you've got the brainway and the capacity and the, the time span and the legal system around you to support you doing a move 
in which you make an active move to remove him, fine. There are options for that. Yeah. Right? There, there are ways to do it. If not, you as the founder need to take the conscious decision that there'll be some shareholders along the way. But you've got to stand firm. You've got to set boundaries, haven't you? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So, Offrey, let's finish off this with your three top tips for entrepreneurs. Right. I think my top three tips would be, one, is for any company that is playing around with tech, and that can be anything from interface, UX, UI, all the way to website, even if you have some tech aspects within your business, like your reporting is digital. I mean, that, that, even that level. My biggest tip would be keep the tech in-house. There's a huge drive to push it to third parties, you know, contractors, different countries, all that stuff. At the end of the day, you need that control. And you need that control to be immediate. And the result is night and day. I bet you I can tell you the difference. If you put me two reports on the table, one done with internal tech, one done with external, I guarantee I can tell you the difference. And in your case, it is overseas, but your co-founder is living in Tel Aviv. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our tech is in Tel Aviv, but managed by my co-founder, all full-time employees of the business. We don't have any contractors. They're all full-time researchers. Yeah, yeah. And your second tip? Second tip would be the relationship between the co-founders. First of all, a tip would be to always have a co-founder. I definitely think that is, and, and when I say co-founder, it's 50-50. Yeah. I heard a lot of co-founders where it's a founder who then brought somebody at a co-founder level and gave him some shares in the business, yes. or more than what you give an employee. I think that one of the best tips I can give is find somebody that you can go 50-50 with yeah. and share that burden. But you need several months or even years before you've found the company to build up that relationship Absolutely. trust. So, so, so my relationship with my current co-founder came from a previous venture where we didn't do 50-50, where we didn't define exactly who's responsible for what. He, being a very high-level professor of, of maths, was dealing with marketing and business, and I was giving tips on the way we should develop the tech, which I shouldn't. And I think we've learned from that. But yeah. bigger of a reason we failed last time was because of that. Yeah. We learned from that, and one of our first conversations was, if we do this, it's 50-50 down the line, I do business, he does tech, and we don't interfere. Right. That's not interfering doesn't mean we don't talk. We speak every day more than I speak to my wife. It means no interfering on the decision-making process. Um, there's a big sentence now in the business that everyone likes to say, you know, between Offrey and Adav, Adav doesn't speak to people, Offrey doesn't speak to computers, and they have a beautiful, frictionless relationship. <laughs> Excellent. Um, I suspect your co-founder does talk to his team, but <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> not yeah. outside the company. Exactly. Well, he talks to other people who only talk to computers, which is fine, right? <laughs> yes. uh, okay. Uh, and your third tip? My third tip would be raise big. And I think that is something I find myself saying when I sit with startups that are just starting. I know I spoke a lot about the saturation of mentors. I fall into that same trap. I'm also mentoring some. I was offered from an accelerator as a good mentor who was raised Series A, which I think is ridiculous, but I do mentor. And I think one of the biggest falls I see is people, we just need 150 to get this done and then we'll raise, or we just need another 300 on top. Where in fact, if you had another million, two million, three million, four million, five million, you could, you know, destroy your competition. And I think people are afraid to raise big because they're afraid of the answer. But then you've got to be a very, very good equity sales guy, which clearly you are. Right. But yes, exactly. you, you need to be very special at that to raise a big sum when it's a very early business. Exactly. But make that bigness related to the stage of the business. So if you're starting off, don't raise 50. Don't yeah. raise 150 SEIS. Yeah, yeah. Stick it to another EIS and make, make it 550, exactly. make it 600. Yeah. Um, if you're raising Series A, don't make it, you know, I have companies that come to me for Series A help and, and they say, we're thinking of asking for 1.2, 2 million. I said, how much do you need to beat your competition? I said, well, four would be really good. I said, why don't you ask for four, right? Investors love that. People don't realize it. But I think VCs nowadays, if you under ask, like, well, what's the drive for this company? Like, how big is his vision or her vision that, exactly. they're, that they're coming in at yeah. two? Come ask for six. We'll give you six. They've got cash. 
Don't be afraid to take it. Exactly. Excellent. It's been really, really interesting, Offrey. We've learned a huge amount from it. There's much more we could talk about, no doubt. And perhaps we should interview again in two years' time to see how far you've got. Maybe you've got to exit for your large number. So thank you very much indeed. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Thanks for listening to another Invested Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investedinvestor.com, or via a number of podcast platforms online. Remember, you can order our book online. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting, and insightful content from The Invested Investor. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.